Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, I'm just curious um, what you may say. I want you to do a, we'll do a couple little exercises this morning as we begin. Um, for your sake, I want to help you out this morning. I want to give you a little love, do a little group exercise. Everybody cool with a group exercise today? Group exercise, here we go. Um, think about the own, your own life, the, the current a pattern of your life. Maybe you could say the, own, the state of your life or the pace of your life. Um, kind of like what's happening in your world, all right? Um, I could let you in on a little bit of what's happening in my world, kind of the things that I'm facing, things that I'm walking through, kind of the pace of, of my life. But I'm curious, uh, the pace of your life. I want you to answer this question to yourself. Um, if you had one word, uh, one word to describe uh, the state of your life currently, uh, what would that word be? Just think about that for a moment. Um, could be all over the place. I'm sure the answers would be high and lows. Across, across the map, you know, just think about the state of your life, think about the pace of your life, and what, if you had one word, what would you use to describe that current pace and that current state? Now, how many of you, by a show of hands, are completely content with your answer to that question? Raise your hand really high in the room. A few, a few, a couple, a few, uh, but not a lot of hands. We're beginning a new series today called Life in Order. Somebody say Life in Order. Life in Order. We're beginning a new series today that I hope uh, will be helpful for you, and we're going to spend the majority of the summer walking through this, and I believe that it will be um, incredibly helpful, though it will be challenging, perhaps one of the most challenging things that you'll have to walk through. I do believe that it will be incredibly helpful for you as we walk through uh, this. Uh, Daniel Murray, in his book uh, titled Reset, uh, talks about uh, your life and a current assessment of your life and gives some diagnostic questions to help us understand and to diagnose where we are in the current state of our lives. And so I actually want to help you. I want to give you a little bit of an exercise here that I'm calling a life assessment. A life assessment, and I'm going to walk through several few statements. I'm going to put them on the screens for you. And I want you to... Um, Answer these to yourself. There's a little checkbox each, beside each of these statements. I'm going to walk through each of them one at a time. There's 10 in total. And so as we read through this statement, in your mind, if it's true of you, check the box. If it's true of you, check the box. And then I want you to tally, to do a little math um, at the same time, and tally in your head um, the different uh, statements that would be true of your life. Okay, so here's the first one. I regularly feel exhausted, behind, and overwhelmed. Is that true of you? If that's true of you, in your mind, check the box. I regularly feel exhausted, behind, behind, and overwhelmed. Some of you are already at one. Number two, I don't get the amount of sleep I would prefer. That's true of you. Check that box. Number three, I struggle to keep clear focus and concentration. Mentally speaking, it's really hard to have focus because your mind's all over the place. I struggle to keep clear focus and concentration. Number four, I find it easy to be pessimistic about my job, marriage, or friendships. I find it easy to be pessimistic about my job, marriage, or friendships. Number five, I have a hard time getting to do the things I would love to do. It seems like I never get to do the thing, that thing that I, would, that I love to do, that I want to do. It seems like I don't ever actually get to it. Number six, I have a tendency to get irritable or snappy with those around me. It seems like it's easy for me to do that these days. Irritable or snappy with those around me. Do not elbow anybody right now. 
Number seven, I am told by others that I am on my phone too much. Woo! It doesn't say whether the statement is true or not or whether that's true that you're on your phone too much. But if at least one person in your life, spouse, family member, friend, coworker, makes the statement that you are on your phone too much, then you check that box um, as well. Number eight, I have a tendency to let work spill over into evenings or weekends or non-work times. None of us struggle with that one. Number nine, I am not making my physical health a priority. Like, Ethan, this isn't looking good so far. And then number 10, hopefully you're keeping tally as you go. Last one, I feel like I'm just getting by when it comes to my spiritual vitality. I feel like I'm just getting by when it comes to my spiritual vitality. So you got that number that is in your head that you've been adding up as you have walked through. Um, I would say that if you have five of those um, or less, or I should say less than five of those um, are true about your life, then I would say you're in the caution zone. You're in the caution zone, which means you probably need to have a little bit of caution about your life. You need to start to reorder some things, think about some things. You're, you're, not, you're not in the danger zone yet, but you're, it's cautious. You're in cautious areas, cautious waters. You're in the cautious zone. If you have five or more that are true of you, I would say you're in the warning zone. You're in the warning zone, all right? It isn't looking good. The trajectory of this isn't going to be good if it continues to go in this direction. And then I would say, lastly, that if seven or more of these are true about you, you are in the danger zone. You're in the danger zone. Significant impacts to your own physical well-being, spiritual well-being, emotional well-being, and relational well-being, and things are falling apart in your life. You're in the danger zone zone. See, as followers of Jesus, we take our cues from Christ, not culture. Every follower of Jesus, we take our cues in every way, shape, or form, not just spiritually speaking, but emotionally speaking, relationally speaking, financially speaking. We take our cues from Christ, not culture. Every Jesus follower must do the hard work of evaluating whether your life is more consistent with Christ the way of Christ, or more consistent with culture in the way of culture. Every society formulates values and norms um, that create various practices and rhythms and expectations of its citizens. And for the 21st century Christian in America, we find our home here, but we belong to a different home, our ultimate home, which is the kingdom and the society of Jesus, and we are his citizens. Our culture is sick, y'all, and doesn't know it. Our culture is, um, is, is just, it's sick. We're addicted to speed. We're addicted to work. We're addicted to entertainment. We're addicted to success. We're rushing, striving, fighting to get to the top and to do whatever it takes to arrive at success. We're living life at 100 miles per hour. One thing after another, you gotta go, you gotta go, you gotta go, you gotta make it to the next event, you gotta make it to the next event, you gotta hurry up, you gotta hurry up, you gotta hurry up, and you gotta get to where you are going. Life at 100 miles per hour. Busyness has consumed our being, and we are actually foolish, foolish enough to think um, that busyness is a badge of honor. There's little downtime, there's little community. Our lives are consumed by screens. We run from one activity to another. And to help us cope with 
the chaos that we are experiencing, we self-medicate our emptiness with pornography and alcohol and entertainment and pills and drugs, and we eat with little care for our body. And the end result of living this way is a chaotic lifestyle void of purpose, meaning, and order. But this is far from the way of Jesus and the speed of Jesus. If you're anything like me, I believe this would be true of you as well, is that Jesus had more to do than any one of us. I think we would agree. But he didn't live life at 100 miles per hour. He actually lived life at three miles per hour, quite literally. Jesus had more important things to do than us, but he walked, he rested, he ate with friends, he lived in healthy community with others. Jesus had more demands on himself than any one of us, but he still practiced solitude and silence and prayer. And Jesus was trending on social media like crazy, but he still made time to pour into others who were far from God and those who desperately needed love and care. You see, when we look at the life of Jesus, we see a completely different paradigm. We see a completely different set of practices. We see a different set of priorities. We see a life in order. And this is a call to follow Jesus and join him in the way he lived and to get your life in order. Over the course of the series, we're going to walk through several different themes. Here are a few. Resting over rushing, which will be our theme for today. Abiding over ambition. Being over doing. Boundaries over busyness. Purpose over pleasure. Contributing over consuming. Community over capitalism. Surrender over success. And these realities are particularly true for um, the 21st century American, especially true for um, those of us who are, are white and the kind of ways that we've been influenced in order to get what we want to get and to accomplish what we want, we want to accomplish and to arrive at what we want to accomplish but this isn't just a white person problem or a white person experience. This is also a black person problem, a black person experience, African-American experience as well. I was thinking this past week of my five closest Afri African-American friends who all struggle with this as well. Rushing and going. The African-American experience, if you're presented with an opportunity, and opportunities are sometimes hard to come by, you're presented with an opportunity, you take it. Because it's an opportunity, sometimes to your own detriment. It's not just true of African-American experience. It's also true of the Asian-American experience. Friends of mine who are Asian-American or have Asian uh, backgrounds have bought into the model minority myth that it, your success is your identity and the only way that you're going to be able to arrive at happiness and success in America is if you strive and try harder than anybody else, which leads to overwork, Workaholism, studying like crazy, got to get the best grades, got to do this. 
This is also true of the Hispanic community as well. A strong work ethic that's true, that's built in, that's hardwired into the Hispanic community, that you've got to get up early, that you've got to work hard, that you've got to, in order to, to eat, in order to provide, in order to just make it. Uh, if it, Many immigrants who come to America just double that or triple that in order to try to succeed, and then you've got language barriers, and then they're just working over and over and over to their own detriment. It's the reality of what I'm trying to say. It's true of, of all of us in our cultural climate, and this is the cultural moment that we find ourselves. And here's what I want to do and to help you today is to look to Jesus and to see his pattern and to see his pace and then to emulate his life and to follow in the way in which he has called us to follow. So today we begin with resting over rushing. Can you even imagine a world in which you do not rush? It's kind of crazy to think about, isn't it? Jesus would say this in Matthew chapter 11. If you've got a Bible, I want you to open it and turn it on, find your way there. Matthew chapter 11, short, small passage for today. Jesus begins this way, his teaching. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, he says this. It's a beautiful invitation. It's a beautiful offer. He says this in verse 28. Come to me. Come to me, all who labor. Labor, that means working, toil, arduous work. All who labor and are heavy laden. Laden there is the idea of a burden, something that's resting on your shoulders, a weight, a heavy weight that is upon you. And the invitation is for those who labor, those who are heavy laden, come to me. And he says, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Um, I love I love that Jesus, I love that Jesus um, offers us an invitation in this moment. I, I, I love that Jesus um, comes to you today, wherever you are, whatever your situation is, whatever your life is like right now, and Jesus comes to you with wherever you are and whatever you've got, and he offers the invitation to you to come to him. Isn't that a beautiful invitation today? I mean, if you think about the gods of the world and the gods of history, whenever you would come into contact with a god of whatever religion, that god always required demands of you in order for you to gain their acceptance and their approval. But here's what Jesus does, the son of God, he actually comes to you in the state in which you find yourself and he offers an invitation to you. He offers you hope, he offers you freedom, he offers you a new life in the situation and the moment in which you find yourself. It's what's beautiful about Jesus. I love this about Jesus. You could say it this way. Christianity begins by receiving, not achieving. That's how Christianity works. Christianity begins by receiving, not achieving. The way that you start this Christian life isn't by earning something for God. The way that you begin the Christian life isn't by being good enough for God. You don't have the ability to be good enough for God. You cannot achieve enough for God to accept you. It just doesn't work that way. Because if it worked that way, that would mean that you are your savior. The way that Christianity works is not by achieving something for God. It's by receiving something from God. That's what I love about communion. I love that we practice communion on a weekly basis. Because communion, you have to open your hands up and you have to receive the bread. The bread is representative of Jesus' body. You have to stand in line and look at someone and receive it. It's something that is given to you as a gift. And you receive that. 
You didn't do anything to earn that. You didn't do anything to deserve the bread. There wasn't anything about that bread that merited your reception of it. It is truly a gift, and you receive it. You receive it. And that's how Christianity begins. Christianity always begins by receiving, not um, achieving. If, if, you, if you're not doing that, you're, you're not doing Christianity. You're doing something you're doing something else. What differentiates Christianity from every other ideology in the world is the good news of the gospel, which is what God has done for you, not what you have done for God. And then that is the baseline that changes your thought and your fundamental approach to who God is. And then you live the rest of your life out of what you have received from God, not what you have achieved for him. Christianity begins by receiving, not achieving. Now, this is fundamentally opposed to American thought. Just so you hear me clearly, this idea is 100% antithetical to American thought. 100%. This is fundamentally opposed to how we all grew up in the world. Life for you and for me was what you had to do, what you had to achieve. And from the age of a child, you have been wired to strive for everything. You had to make good grades. You had to make the team. You had to make the club. You had to make the GPA. You had to make the degree. You had to make the career. Make, 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 do, 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 strive, 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 achieve, 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 Work, 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 and then you might be successful, and then we might all accept you. It's fundamentally opposed to the gospel. There isn't anything wrong with work. There's actually something very sacred and very holy about work. There isn't anything evil about accomplishments or achievements. It's a good thing that we've turned into a God thing. And, and, and here Jesus... Um, uses this beautiful metaphor of an invitation and invites us in. He would go on, he would say this in verse 29. He says, take my yoke upon you. Somebody say yoke. Is that like an egg? What's he talking about? Take my yoke upon you. And old school agricultural terminology. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is so um, amazing. Jesus, he uses this metaphor here of, um, it's an agricultural metaphor of plowing a field. In those days, uh, you didn't have a John Deere tractor uh, that would do the hard work of farming for you. Um, you would have uh, oxen, and you would uh, take a plow that was connected to a yoke, which was a harness that was then laid on an ox or oxen, which would pull the plow. And what Jesus is saying is that all of us, in, in some way, shape, or form, have a yoke that has been laid upon us, metaphorically speaking. But I think it's sometimes so strong that you can even feel the physical weight of it. A yoke that has been laid upon you on your shoulder, something that we're carrying, something that we're trying to pull, something we're trying to work for. And in this particular instance, Jesus is speaking to religious people. What happens in religion is that your religion actually becomes a yoke because of all the demands. The Old Testament law and the Torah and all of its stipulations was commonly referred to as a yoke in Jewish culture. It wears you out. 
It's a burden. It's exhausting. It's tiresome because you don't, well, rather because you know you don't actually have what it takes to deliver and to pull it in the way that you should. And your yoke today is whatever you're pulling. And I can't answer that question for you, but what are you pulling today? You're so striving and trying to pull this thing and try to achieve so that you will be accepted and so that people will like you, so that God will say well done for you. You're trying and you're working and it's hard and you're pulling this thing. And it's on you. And your yoke is whatever you're pulling, whatever you're trying to find, whatever you're trying to achieve. And for most of us, we have the yoke of the American dream and don't even realize it. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with the American dream, just for the record. Not inherently evil. The idea that you can have opportunity and make it and accomplish something with your life is not inherently an evil idea. There isn't necessarily anything evil with the American dream. But we have uh, taken this, bit this, hook, line, and sinker as the fundamental default operation of our lives, as the baseline for our lives. And the yoke of the American dream is you have to be successful in order to be accepted. This was pretty interesting for me. I was thinking this week about the word success. Can you just imagine in your own life, in your own world, culture, school, work, how many times uh, throughout the course of a week that you hear the word success? on TV, written in an article, maybe from a boss, maybe from an employer, maybe in the newspaper. I mean, we just, it, it could be one of the most common words that's mentioned in our society. Success, success, success. This week I was like, I wonder what the Bible has to say about success. So I did a little a word search real quick. I pulled up, pulled up online. I typed in and wanted to see in the New Testament, like, how many times the word success is mentioned, specifically in the English Standard Version, how many times the word success is mentioned. I type it into the search bar, hit enter, hit search. It does its little calculation to try to find how many times it's mentioned in the New Testament. Guess how many times the word success is mentioned in the New Testament? Zero. Zero. But we have engineered our life to be successful. We've been told that if we try hard enough, if we sacrifice enough and do well, then we can make it. And then unless you get this kind of success, you won't be happy. It actually sounds oddly similar to religion. It's interesting to me that in the world, globally speaking, there are 7.53 billion people that exist in the world approximately right now. America is roughly 4% of the world's population. Which So does this mean that only 4% of people in the world have a chance at happiness? In my experience, actually, as I've traveled the world, it seems that there are actually more people happy outside America than actually in America. My wife and I, we travel to Haiti typically once a year, partner with a ministry there that we are connected to as a church. One of the most impoverished countries in the Western Hemisphere. And every time I go, it seems like the people there are happier than Americans. 
This just doesn't make sense. But America is one of the most prosperous and advanced societies in the history of the world. I mean, every luxury, every gadget, every advancement, the latest and the greatest, but we are experiencing the highest suicide rate ever in the history of our country. And we're experiencing some of the highest rates of antidepressants in our country. We're in a society that has found luxury but has lost life. And it seems to me that perhaps the American dream is more like the American nightmare. We're telling people that they can be successful and therefore they can be happy. But here's a newsflash for you today. Happiness doesn't come from success. Happiness isn't a thing or a place. Happiness is a state of being. Happiness doesn't start with success. Happiness starts with your soul. One of the church fathers who's incredibly famous in history, he lived in, I believe, the 12th and 3rd centuries. A philosopher, a theologian, one of the fathers of Western thought and Western ideas, wrestled with this same reality. His name was Thomas Aquinas. He talked about desire and how that desire in a human, need in a human, ambition in a human, desire in a human is actually never satisfied. You can search the world over, but you actually won't be able to find anything that will be able to satisfy your desire, which means we live in a constant state, or you could say a chronic state, of unsatisfied desire, which then produces in our lives restlessness. He would refer to it as an unstoppable itch, an itch that you couldn't stop. It would just keep going on and on and on because the desire could not be quenched. And he would say that desire in us is an infinite desire. It's something that's greater than the finite. And so his formula is basically this, infinite desire plus finite beings equals restlessness. The equation, if you're trying to take an infinite desire and fulfill that infinite desire with a finite thing, then it will always, only, forever produce restlessness in your life. That that desire can't actually be fulfilled by finite things if it's an infinite desire. Dallas Willard in a similar thought would say it this way. Desire is infinite partly because we were made by God, made for God, made to need God, and made, I love this, to run on God. We can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply all our needs. We are only at home in God. When we fall away from God, the desire for the infinite remains. It is displaced upon things that will certainly lead to destruction. Did you know that the opposite of Christianity um, is not atheism? It's actually idolatry. Idolatry is anytime we make our aim, our hope, our goal, anything other than God. The opposite of Christianity isn't the disbelief in God, it's putting God in the wrong place. It's idolatry. Rather than find our satisfaction in God, we're trying to manufacture false satisfaction in the things around us. That's one of the reasons why we selected the profile picture for our social media account. You selected the picture of yourself. It took you a while to find the picture that you wanted, but you finally found it. But then the picture wasn't good enough on its own, and so you had to crop it. 
and then after you would spend a few minutes cropping it, then you had to filter it, and then you had to manufacture it in such a way to present the you that you wish you could be. You see, when we, this is what Jesus is getting at, when we mine the mountain of our lives, the mountain of chaos, the mountain of busyness, the mountain of ambition, what we find when we get to the bottom, to the bedrock, is not a need for health and stability, but a need for validation. It's a need for validation. It's a need to be approved. It's a need to be accepted. And in the same way that Jesus offered this invitation to his first century cultural moment, he offers it to our cultural moment as well. Which means Christ offers you something culture cannot. Christ offers you a different kind of yoke. And this is beautiful. Jesus' yoke is not one that's heavy. Jesus' yoke is not one that will break you down and make you fall and stutter your step. Jesus' yoke is not one that is oppressive and overbearing. But the yoke that Jesus offers to you is one that is easy and light and life-giving. And what Jesus offers in his yoke is this, rest. Rest. And a specific kind of rest, rest for your soul. You know, our culture um, treats rest kind of like a four-letter word, doesn't it? Rest. Why would you ever rest? Don't Don't you work? Don't you have things to do? Don't you have places to be? Don't you have things to accomplish? Why would you ever? Rest isn't even celebrated in our culture. It's kind of like this weird thing. It's kind of like this ugly thing that why would you ever do that? That's never going to help you in your life to get ahead. It's like a four-letter word. I'll say it this way. Life in order starts with the soul. We're going to be walking through for several weeks over the course of the summer some pretty significant patterns that will change the pace of your life and the rhythms of your life and the direction of your life, but I want to be clear at the very beginning is that it isn't okay if you change the structure of your life without changing your soul. It actually doesn't do you a whole lot of good if you work and tweak and fix and try to change the structure without first working on the soul. And I would say that there is a direct correlation between the soul of your life and the structure of your life. And the reason that you're experiencing the kind of structure in your life is because it was planted in the soul of your life. What you find in the structure is just what's been planted in the soul. And which means you have to do the hard work of going all the way down, digging down into the soul and wrestling what is, with what is in your soul. What is restless in your soul today? What is not satisfied in your soul today? What is not okay in your soul today? Because that is what is breeding and creating the things that you're experiencing in the periphery of your life. I love how St. Augustine, the African theologian, said it. He said this, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Here's what that means. Until you find your rest in God, until your soul experiences and arrives at a place of rest with God, in him, finding that in him, you'll never be at a place where you have rest in your life. I think, y'all, this is just 
the water that we swim in and don't even realize it. Um, on a rare occasion, I get the opportunity, maybe once a year or once a couple years, to be able to fish offshore. I love to fish. And every now and then, I get the opportunity to make it all the way to the Gulf Stream. Let me explain the Gulf Stream to you. This is an incredibly significant phenomenon. If you're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, several, I believe it's upwards of, you know, 40, 50, 60 miles. I'm not sure. I'm not the captain. 40, 50, 60 miles off the coast of uh, Wilmington. And you will arrive at something that is called the Gulf Stream. Well, here's what's interesting about the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream is actually a body of warm water. It's actually a river or a current that flows through the Atlantic Ocean, which is fantastic. It actually begins in the Gulf of Mexico. And the heat, um, global heat, not global warming, global heat, I'm not going down that road. Um, actually, this has happened for a long time. Uh, cr creates a current um, that starts and goes around the tip of Florida and then hugs the eastern coast of the Atlantic Ocean and then goes all the way up even into the northern hemisphere. And what's amazing about the fishing in the Gulf Stream is that the war warm water attracts a certain kind of fish that's there. Um, big fish that you get to catch and bring all the way home. So avid fishermen, offshore fishermen love to get to the Gulf Stream. But here's what's interesting about the Gulf Stream. It's this amazing current that's flowing through the middle of the ocean. But most of the time, you can't even tell that you're there. Every now and then, there's maybe um, a little bit of a, a current or a little bit of a trash line where you can see the two currents that are together. But if you're in the middle of the Gulf Stream, you actually can't even realize it. I mean, you can't really see anything out in the horizon. There isn't anything... You know, there's no buoy out there that told you you made it. You're just kind of out in the middle of, you actually can't, you don't even realize that you're in the Gulf Stream when you're in the middle of it. Here's the reality about culture. Every culture is a current that you live and operate in that you don't even realize you are in. And if it's a bad culture, if it's a good culture, if it's a helpful culture, if it's a harmful culture, whatever culture it is, will take you to the ultimate destination, which you either wanted to or didn't want to arrive at. And here's the hard question that we have to ask over the course of this summer is, does our life and our rhythms and our practices and our patterns look more like the way of Jesus or look more like the way of our culture? Is there anything about our patterns and the pace of our life and the rhythms of our life that look different than the people that are around us? Do we actually look like Christians in our culture? Do we actually look like people who are saved? Do we actually look like people who have a different home than this home? Do we look like vacationers here in, in our culture? For the Christian, our ultimate home is a different destination altogether, which means we're just on vacation here, y'all. All right, don't get too comfortable here because we're just on vacation for a little while. We got a mission. We got something that we're trying to accomplish right here. Our future home, our ultimate home, our destination is a home yet to come. It isn't yet um, here. And life in order starts with the soul. It starts with the soul. It starts down deep in your gut. And the reason that you're experiencing the things that you're experiencing is because of what's happening down in your soul, in the interworkings of your soul. And so the call today is resting over rushing. Resting over rushing. Where are the ways, where are the places in your life that you find yourself rushing? Are you rushing through prayer? Are you rushing through time with God in Scripture? Or do you even get to that? You're rushing through community group. Are you rushing through 
church? Are you rushing through relationships? Are you rushing through meals? How many of you eat in like two and a half minutes and then you're on to the next thing? Where in your life are you rushing rather than resting? And the habit of rushing is like the smoke rising from the flames of a restless, weary soul. The best I can tell, Jesus never had a habit of hurry. The best I can tell, Jesus never had a habit of rushing. If Jesus was ever rushing in any, at any point, he seemed to be rushing away from the chaos rather than rushing into it. And so your rushing may be like smoke, an indicator of a restlessness that is true in your soul. And then verse 30, Jesus says this. I love this. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is the only one in the world that will ever offer you that. Your career does not offer you that. Education does not offer you that. It's not the kind of yoke an education puts on you. Even family, even relationship, even marriage is an altogether different kind of weight. But the weight that Jesus gives, the yoke that Jesus offers, the invitation that Jesus gives to you is an invitation that is light and easy. Why? It's light because he's carrying the load of it. He's carrying the load of it, which means it's easy on you. Which means the acceptance, the approval, the validation, the significance that you're trying to accomplish. Jesus already accomplished that for you. Which is the beauty of the gospel. Which because of Jesus, because Jesus' righteousness has been imputed into my life. And that I stand in the righteousness of Jesus. I no longer have to worry that it will be my own righteousness that will make me acceptable before God. I now get to stand and rest and enjoy the place in which I find myself because Jesus is for me. And I'm now in Christ. I'm in Christ. I'm in him. It starts at the soul. It changes your soul. Okay, so some of you are like, man, this is, this is a doozy, Ethan. <laughs> uh, this is a doozy. You're looking at your life. You're like, oh, boy, um, I don't know where to start. Um, you don't have to figure it out today. we got several weeks of this, and so we'll, we'll help you along the way. Some of you have like, I mean, you just had like 14 excuses like in the past 20 minutes. I mean, you're like, but this, but this, but this, but this, but this, but this. Ethan, if you only knew my life, but this, but this, but this. If you only knew this, but Ethan, my situation. It's kind of a, that's, that's actually a rebellion. It's kind of a bucking up against the freedom and the truth that Jesus offers. So here, here's, what, here's, what Jesus, here's what Jesus is offering you today. It's an invitation. Will you receive it? Just will you receive it? Will you receive the kind of rest that he has for you? And here's how you receive things in the Bible. Here's how you receive things. It's called repentance. It's repentance. Repentance is really a shift of the mindset, a shift of the attitude. It's a turning of your thinking. It's a 180-degree shift in the way in which you are operating, your mentality, your mindset, 
It's repentance. It's changing the way that you're thinking, and it's receiving a new way of life, a new pattern of life, a new way of living, a new set of beliefs. Repentance is exchanging one set of beliefs for a different set of beliefs that will produce an altogether different set of behaviors for a new set of behaviors. And so here's what you do today. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to get it all figured out today. All you have to do is repent. Repent. It starts with the soul. So I don't know how I'm going to figure this out. I don't know exactly what this is going to look like for me, for my life. But at the end of the day, I love Jesus. I want Jesus. I want to follow the way that Jesus has for me. And so today, um, you repent. And I said this earlier, but repentance always breeds renewal. Uh, repentance is so hard on the front end, but it's so beautiful on the back end. Re- repentance is so challenging on the front end, but it's such a delight on the back end. And once you step through the door of repentance, it actually breeds in your own life a, a level of renewal, a reality of renewal in you. And so the call today is the call of repentance. It's not a call to clean yourself up and then God will love you. It's not the call to get yourself together and God will help you. It's not a call to get your mess together, to take care of your mess, and then we'll start working on you. Uh, the call is to give your life to Jesus today, to give your situation to Jesus today, to give your mess to him today. His invitation was for people that did not have it together, that did not have it figured out. He offered the invitation then, you receive the invitation, and then you walk it out with him. The invitation is Jesus. And I'll close this way. I love the way that the message, Eugene Peterson, paraphrases this section of scripture, and I want to Just speak this over you as I close. The message says, Matthew 11, 28 through 30. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Amen.